Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. Medium, clairvoyant, psychic, numerologist, astrologer, Maurice Amder will join me. I don't just talk about UFOs and ghosts uh, on this program. Yes, I talk about aliens and the paranormal a lot, but I, I work with a pretty broad canvas. And from time to time, I also discuss conspiracies and cover-ups. Uh, these are things Don Jeffries spends a lot of time thinking about, writing about, and talking about. In fact, the two of us have spent a lot of time talking about these things together over the years on this program, on Coast to Coast AM, on my podcast. And uh, Don is here this hour. Don has been researching the JFK assassination since the mid-1970s when he was a teenage volunteer for Mark Lane's Citizens uh, Committee of Inquiry. He's very active on all the JFK assassination forums. He's been a moderator on the London Spartacus Education Forum for several years. His first published book, the acclaimed 2007 novel The Unreals has been um, compared to Alice in Wonderland and The Wizard of Oz. He's since focused on works of nonfiction, beginning with Hidden History, an encyclopedia of modern crimes, conspiracies, and cover-ups in American politics, Survival of the Richest, how the corruption of the marketplace and the disparity of wealth created the greatest conspiracy of all time, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963. Bullyocracy, how the social hierarchy enables bullies to rule schools, rule schools, workplaces, mm-hmm. and society at large. On Borrowed Fame, Money, Mysteries, and Corruption in the Entertainment World. He's now working on uh, another edition of Hidden History. And, um, well, another book maybe we'll, uh, we'll talk about. I don't want to tell tales out of school uh, but um, you can read his terrific essays at donaldjeffries.substack.com. He's also the host of the radio program, I Protest. Don, welcome back to the show. How are you, my friend? I'm just fine, Richard. So it's always so uh, it's a great pleasure and an honor to talk with you. You know, I think it just occurred to me, I, prob- I, I should update your website. Do they even have these JFK forums? I mean, do they have forums <laughs> yeah. anymore? What I, are I they? Th- I meant to tell you, I think that was uh, <clears throat> when I first had the first Hidden History come out because, uh, yeah, I don't even know. I doubt I'm still a moderator there. I, I haven't posted there for a long time. So, yeah, I need to take that stuff out about the forum because, to be honest with you, the JFK research community has not uh, given me any support at all to move to me. It's amazing that Hidden History did really well because – 
I, I originally put that in my introduction because I thought that would be a natural for me, but uh, they've ignored it pretty much. So, uh, <laughs> to put it that way. So there's no point in even, it's not a part of me anymore anyhow. So uh, yeah, I need to update that uh, that bio a bit. That's interesting. You haven't received any support from the JFK assassination, if we can call it a community, um, in your work and, and in covering, uncovering, you know, more corruption in American history. Why is that? Why why do they not support you? Yeah, you know, it's uh, having been in that community for since the mid seventies. When I got out to teenager with Mark Lane, uh, it's it's always been so dysfunctional, and it kind of it mirrors you know the society. I write a lot about American dysfunction. I, I don't know how it is in Canada, but here it's just awful. Family dysfunction, especially. But the JFK assassination research community has always been that way. Even before I came along, there was a lot of infighting, but now it's just. It's, there's not even any point in going there. I, I, as I'm writing Good History 3, which I'm finishing up, I've dealt with some of them and relied on some of them. And uh, it's not, not, there are some that are, that are supportive, but by and large, you know, and they, uh, there's a lot of big egos, difficult personalities. And unfortunately, you know, the establishment, when they smear, uh, you know, when they smear us, so-called conspiracy theorists, a lot of those personalities can fit the bill. They can act that way, and you know your heart. So, like, you know, I, it's it. It is what it is, and there's a lot of petty jealousy and things like that too. I think, but uh, I, I really don't know why they uh, why they have. But they don't they don't tend to support each other very much at all. So uh, it's not just me, but uh, so. But you know, the, the book did great in spite of it, and uh, but it wasn't due to any kind of support from the community. It kind of mirrors the UFO community i think in that regard i don't know how fall how closely you follow that arena but this is characterized by constant infighting tearing somebody down accusing the other one of being controlled opposition yes 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 uh, same sort of thing with the jfk crowd right yes i mean it's you can find it everywhere uh ufo again the ufo research community attracts those kind of personalities and does the J- I mean, there. You know, people tell me all the time I'm even keeled. I don't get upset at people. I don't get down in the gutter with them, which infuriates them. Really, you know, they call you names, and you 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 remain your maintain your calm. That's the way to get them really freak out. But I just I don't go there. That's just my style. Uh, but that's not the style of very many that research. Nine eleven research is the same kind of way. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. And, and and it's I don't know why it is, and it's just uh, I you know I, I've met some some decent people that I can get along with it, but by and large, it's difficult personalities. Even the ones that do great work, you know, Mark Lane, Mark Lane had a pretty, he, he wasn't really that bad. Harold Weisberg, another guy who I loved and uh, he was my hero, but he was, he was the king of difficult personalities. Really, really like a, uh, a grumpy old man, curmudgeon. Just fit that bill perfectly. Yeah. I wonder if it's because people become so invested in a particular theory yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's take 9-11 as an example and controlled demolition. Yeah. And so they become so wrapped up in that, it almost bec- it, it almost becomes part of their identity or the entirety of their identity. And so to to quibble or to to argue against, you know, that particular facet of 9-11 is, is then a personal attack. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and that's why I don't. You know, people tell me about you know, JFK or anything, and they tell you know, say, who do you think killed JFK? I, said, I don't know. I, I said, but I, I do know that after studying this thing for forty some years, the one thing conclusively that they proved inadvertently was that Lee Harvey Oswald did. So he didn't do it, and they've invested a lot of time and energy into telling you that he did, and they've covered a lot of stuff up. So you, know, you can do the math. I mean, you know, it, it just stands to reason those covering up those those forces were probably where the conspiracy came from. But I don't pretend to know that. Same thing with 9-11. I'm aware there's a lot of questions about holograms and were there planes and what struck the Pentagon. I mean, I, I know all that. But I'm not going to get that vested in it that I think someone's a disinfo agent because they see this or that. Again, what, what they told you happened is a fairy tale. It wasn't 19 crazed Arabs armed with, uh, with box cutters and plastic knives by you know some six-foot-eight uh, tallest guy in the Middle East, you know, directing things from a cave. I mean, that's, that's absurd. While, while they, you know, the planes flew around for what, an hour and a half, while the biggest military power the world has ever seen did nothing to try to stop them. So that story makes no sense. So then you go from there and who's covering it up? Okay. In, you know, the 
easiest thing to say is 9-11 was an inside job. with some kind of inside job, I think. But uh, regardless, they're lying to you. That's why I say about everything now, Richard. That's my tack when people tell me about anything. I said, look, they're lying to you about everything. So I don't discount anything, flat earth, hollow earth, anything, because we've been lied to about everything. I'm not going to poo-poo anything. I'll listen to anything because I understand that at this point, people in charge, we really can't trust them about anything. I mean, if they're telling you it's raining outside, then uh, you know, don't bring an umbrella. I mean, there's, it's, that's, that's the level of trust I have for them. Yeah, the questions are more important than the answers. I mean, people who claim they have the answers, mm-hmm. all the answers, uh, you run away from those people. It's the questions that are more important, I think, at this point. And as you say, we question everything. Hidden history. Um, the first one came out. Then you did a, an updated version with a, a forward by Roger Stone. Right. Now you're working on, or you've submitted, it's ready to go, right? Hidden history. This is Hidden History mm-hmm. 3. Yeah, because crimes and cover-ups in American politics, 1776, 1963, Ted Ford by Ron Paul, that was really hidden history, too. And that's what I wanted to call it. But for some reason, the publisher didn't want that. So they may not like hidden history three either. But I've discovered, Richard, after having these books published, that the hidden history book and the crimes and cover-up books, the books about hidden history, those are the ones people buy. They outsell all the others, you know, by not even close. Hidden history still sells way more than all the others. So, and it's something I love doing. So I said, okay, I'm, you know, why not try to sell more books? So it, this is going to be called, unless they change the title, Hidden History 3, more from the American memory hole. And I had so much material because I, I have like a lot of people help me, but I have three researchers who were volunteers, but they did so much work. And, you know, I, I, I call them out as much as I can. Bob Wilson, uh, Chris Grays, and Peter Seacott, they, they just constantly provided me with, you know, information. Uh, I, you know, I couldn't have found them all on my own. So um, very appreciative of that. But they sent me so much stuff that eventually I had to cut a lot of the book out. And because it's still like almost 500 pages. But I, I, I said, well, I've got Hidden History 4 here, basically. So I've already got a good start on that. Uh, and I haven't even approached Trump. So all Trump stuff is going to be at Hidden History 4. And that's a huge amount, right? This one just basically goes over some of the same stuff, but it deep dives back into the founding of the Republic, a lot more in the Civil War and uh, uh, more in the Mexican-American War, where a lot of the stuff started. Uh, a lot of our, uh, in, we didn't really have an, an intervention as foreign policy until Woodrow Wilson, so I focus a lot on Wilson and the things he did that people don't realize. You know, we started an intervention as foreign policy, things he did in Haiti, and invaded Mexico like nine times or something when he was sent to this is hidden history with people don't know. Our conduct in the Philippines, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, it's horrible stuff. And I, I have reports in there, the, and I got a lot of it from Howard Zinn, who people have, a lot of people have compared me to him. And I never had read his work before, People's History of the United States. But he he's far left on a lot of that. I, I wouldn't have agreed with one, a lot of things. But he's very good about um, a lot of this populist stuff where it, the American military did. Uh, I have several Indian massacres that really haven't talked about very much that happened in the history. And then again, what happened in the Philippines, Haiti, uh, and Dominican Republic. And there you, you see the similarities, the pattern. It goes back to, you know, in Crimes and Cover-Ups, I wrote about the scorched uh, earth and, and the total war strategy under Lincoln's generals. Well, you can see that's just, that just became entrenched. And you saw the same kinds of things, the theft, lots of theft. They were stealing property left and right everywhere they went. And that's what happened under uh, Sherman, especially General Sherman, that extortion racket. He was just stealing, uh, you know, as, as they swept through the South. So we see that. We see lots of rapes, lots of horrible treatment of uh, children. So just, you know, really, and I, I'm not trying to be like an American doing this, but. That was my next question. It, yeah. you know, <laughs> I mean, do how do you feel about America? What do we mean by America? Not just not the yeah. government, but the the ideal of America, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the yeah. what Amer- what the ideal of what America is supposed to to stand for. I mean, obviously, it hasn't uh, it hasn't lived up to that. No, uh, up to that. But how do you feel about your country? Well, you know, I was I was in a film. Um, it has, it's, 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 I have credits on IMDb now because it's actually on there, but it still has never been released. And it, Jesse Ventura, Gerald Salanti, a lot of 
people were in it. I was honored to be in it. But the title of the movie kind of uh, sums up my beliefs. And it's that uh, I love my country, but I hate what they're doing. And that's that's the way I feel about it. I, I the system of government, and I I think I'm uh, you know I've been accused of being a fanboy of the founding fathers, especially Thomas Jefferson. I mean, I mean, I still probably maybe sugarcoat some of their stuff, and that's why I did try to put a few negative things that happened during the American Revolution in this book because it wasn't perfect. But by and large, they they were statesmen, and they created. Even though I I probably would not have supported the Constitution, Jefferson and uh, Patrick Henry. Amazing. Most of those people uh, didn't, as Patrick Henry said, he smelled a rat in the Constitutional Convention because the Articles of Confederation, I think, were good. And uh, they, there was more of a loose lit because it was really decentralized power. States were each individual states. And I think that's the best, you know, have a decentralized power. That government is best, which governs the least, as Jefferson said. But when they, by putting a Bill of Rights in there, which is at the behest of Jefferson and George Mason, basically, George Mason, I, I write a lot about him in the book, too. He's been forgotten, even though he's a university right around the corner from me, George Mason University, where, ironically, he probably wouldn't be allowed to teach today. You know? <laughs> just, as, just as Thomas Jefferson would not be allowed at the University of Virginia. You can guarantee that. Uh, so it's ironic that these, these uh, colleges named after these people. But uh, once they wrote the Bill of Rights, I think that that really tempered uh, the power that was invested in the central government and the checks and balances that Madison came up with. I think it's the most perfect form of government. I mean, I, I can't argue with the anarchists too much anymore. You know, when they talk to me now, I said, you know, I don't have an answer for some of your arguments at this point. The authority is so bad now. I, you know, I, I don't want anarchy, but I really can't argue with you too much on it. But um, if you're going to have a government, I think this is the best. It, 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 again, it's never worked as intended. You know, the, these, and I talk about judicial uh, review in this book a lot. And we go back and look at the history of it. Everything. He was the first critic of judicial review. Nobody's talked about it in a very long time. And it shows how under John Marshall, you know, the, the, those checks and balances, which were essential to the system working right, were three separate and equal branches where they would check the power of the other two. Uh, what happened is the Supreme Court right away, and I, I have the quotes from Jefferson. He saw what's happening right away. He said, this is not what's intended. And, and so we see in the recent decision here, Roe versus Wade, that's exactly what wasn't supposed to happen, but it wasn't supposed to happen in the original 1972 decision either, because the, the Supreme Court was not supposed to legislate. You can, you can look through the Constitution all you want. You're not going to see the word abortion in there. It doesn't address that issue. They couldn't even comprehend it, probably. But Well, so, if it's not in the Constitution, it belongs to the states. Exactly. And, that, and so that's, that's the argument under judicial review. Both parties now, both the Democrats and the Republicans, they just hope to get a sympathetic judge. They said, let the courts decide. And that's a huge mistake. And that's that's what we've been uh, allowing to happen for, you know, it's probably uh, Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, certainly since, it's Roe, since Roe versus Wade. And that's why it's laughable when you see the left. Uh, they, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. I mean, they just lost in the Supreme Court the same way they won in 1972. Both decisions really are outside the powers of the judiciary but it's interesting to see how uh they don't have exactly any kind of sportsmanship because this is what you wanted but don't you see what the supreme court has done recently with not only roe versus wade sending it back to the states as more of a remedy also with and a check on the executive so for example with the epa they have basically said the EPA has, which is an extension of the the executive branch, they have overstepped. You can't tell uh, a power generating plant in West Virginia how much right. carbon dioxide you can emit. So, right. uh, and also with the um, the decision uh, on conceal, overturning a one hundred year old yeah. ban on concealed carry in New York, don't you see what the Supreme Court is doing now as one of the, like re, reassuming its role as a as a check and balance? Well, I. Yes, I, I do. I see. Yes, because they are they're rolling back some bad previous decisions of the Supreme Court. But my fear, again, is that both sides are still expecting the Supreme Court to be the arbiter of these things. In my, in my opinion, and yes, they, they remedied something with Roe versus Wade and concealed uh, weapons. But we need to look at this question of judicial review, and neither side will do it because both sides 
want to have, that's why there was so much emphasis on Trump getting uh, the right judges in the Supreme Court. And, and that's what and Democrats want to expand the court. They want to have somebody sympathetic. And this is what's wrong with our system. Now we have a, we already had a, a, a justice system that was full of you know, lots of horrible injustices and unfairness and inequality, but it has become so politicized now that and when you have somebody like uh, Steve Bannon or something, again, I'm not, but you know, that's a complete politicized prosecution, much as it was for Roger Stone, where he's going to walk into a courtroom that is presided over by almost certainly an Obama or Clinton appointee. Even if it's a Bush appointee, probably do the same thing. And he won't have a chance because the judge will be overtly prejudiced against him. And uh, again, Washington, D.C., that's why um, a little while back you had uh, Durham, who couldn't even get that one conviction on uh, Hillary Clinton's lawyer because the jury pool base in, in Washington, D.C. is like 95 percent Democratic. So how, you're, you're not going to get any convictions on the other side. And I, so, again, that's why I think the, the Republicans, the conservatives are not being very wise because they need to be realistic there and say the courts aren't the remedy. I would, uh, <clears throat> I would like to see some type of real reform. But again, our, our court system, it's as messed up as everything else because it's been completely politicized. And, you know, one of the things I've been doing for uh, in the last couple of years, I don't know if I'll ever write a book on it exclusively because it'll just be another book like Bullyocracy and Survival of the Riches and On Borrowed Fame that probably won't sell that well because, you know, people don't really want the books that they read by me are about hidden history or conspiracy stuff. But I would I would love to write a book uh, about our legal system, our injustice system, from top to bottom. From, you know, from police. Uh, and I do have in hidden history three. I have a history of uh, asset forfeiture laws. I think it's very important for us to know that because that's the that's I don't know how if you have that in Canada or not. But that that is the basis for so much corruption in the United States because and it became entrenched in the eighties, where uh, you you started they, the police saw this incredible revenue source for them, where they were and the Supreme Court has upheld them a couple times to. The, yeah, disgraceful. One of the most famous cases, a woman. I'll just get with Don, pardon the interruption. I'm going to take a quick time out. We'll come back sure. and we'll get into asset forfeiture, forfeiture laws. Uh, Don Jeffries is with us. And uh, again, check out his uh, essays. I protest. DonaldJeffries.substack.com. DonaldJeffries.substack.com. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome back. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. We're back with Don Jeffries. 
and uh, we can look forward to Hidden History 3. When is that due in uh, bookstores, Don? Well, I I haven't I've told the publisher about it. I haven't I haven't even sent it yet. I'm still I'm still digging on a couple um, things that I'm trying to resolve before publication. It's it's down the road. I mean, and that's assuming that Skyhorse, my primary publisher, take. I mean, they've taken three of my books, but it's all together. You know, possible they may not. And if that's the case, I have a I have a couple alternatives. That I'd okay, it's it's going to be a little while. Uh, I protest. Um, which, you know, this is a collection of your uh, essays, and uh, I mentioned uh, donaldjeffries.substack.com. There's also the radio show, I protest. How do we listen to that? Yeah, that's, well, it's on it's on Rockfin now. Rockfin is becoming, uh, Substack is the, it, Rockfin is the video equivalent, I guess, or the audio equivalent of uh, Substack is to literary world. Or Substack is, you know, people like Glenn Greenwald, Naomi Wolf, my friend. Uh, more and more people are flocking there because it's a free speech platform. Don't censor. You can pretty much say what you want there. So uh, I don't worry at all that I'm going to be censored or anything like I do on social media. And uh, so it's great. And uh, I'm getting more and more people there. It's, it's People are supporting it. It's, and it ha- I have a pay option there, so I can even make a little money if people – but I, everything I offer is for free. I'm a populist, so I can have a paywall, but if people want to help, uh, wonderful, and some have. But um, Rockfin – R-O-K-F-I-N, rockfin.com. Again, lots of good people over there. Uh, Jimmy Dore, Tim Tripoli, Richard Gage, 9-11, Truth More and more people are flocking there as well. Um, Primetime, 99, Alex Stein. There's more and more people there. And uh, it's getting a good audience. And it live streams. So we live stream every Friday from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern. Um, rockfin and my social media. Now, uh my social media that got by far the biggest attention was YouTube, but YouTube keeps banning me or stopping me from live streaming. I haven't been able to live stream lately, but uh, what I do, it's nice as another thing. But so it's mainly on Rockfin. Uh, um, and then I have uh, Jeff Rentz's network, which is a pretty big network. And he, uh, re- he takes all my shows and they play them, I think, four times a week on their schedule um, at some point. there, And I'm on Jeff Rentz every Monday Eastern. So uh, those are nice platforms and uh, you know, people want to can hear me there. And I'm, the, the Donald Jeffrey show is on hiatus, but I'll be br- be bringing that back pretty soon. I, there's a couple of my friends who are starting up the network and we'll be doing that as well. All right. We were talking about uh, asset forfeiture uh, in the United States, which you say is a big scam. <laughs> what is asset forfeiture? No, it's basically the idea that it actually goes back. I found the history of it. It went back to uh, like, uh, you know, of the republic they actually had a couple of decisions but it's, they've always been wrong about it because basically it's 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 claiming that property associated with the crime can be confiscated by the government and so even if it's loosely associated so let's say you know you and i have kids if we had been on the unlucky side of asset forfeiture and if our kids our kids happen to be you know selling marijuana in the house let's say to one of their friends comes over and they sell a bag of dope to them under asset forfeiture if that if that transaction took place in our house they can take our house away from us and we have a very hard we have a hard time getting it back and the supreme court has upheld their their you know their uh, ability to do this in one notable decision uh, this is one of the greatest injustices i think the supreme court ruled eight to one i think it was under the uh rehnquist uh court i think it was just disgraceful this woman her husband went and um, visited a prostitute and uh, they had sex in her car. So the police confiscated the car. And she naturally admitted, that's my car. And uh, no, I said, no, this is associated with the crime. It belongs to us now. They impound, and that's what they can do. So she took it all the way to the Supreme Court protesting. And the Supreme Court ruled that, no, they had the right to take her car. So she didn't get her car back. And I have lots of stories that will be in the book of people that uh, you know, were arrested for uh, speeding. And they were... Uh, you know, they had uh, large amounts of cash on them. The police confiscated the cash because they had suspicion to believe it might have been involved in drugs. They had no evidence. They, they, it's amazing. And again, the worst part is like when parents or something that aren't associated with anything, they're not really any crimes most of the time anyhow, but they lose something. They lose their house. They lose life. And, it, and nobody's talking about it. And I, I believe that it's when you see the cops going wild videos and all that stuff, and you saw it with Uvalde, you know, recently in Texas, we saw the other side of that where uh, literally they stood and did nothing while uh, uh, somebody was shooting kids inside of school. I mean, I mean, how any of those cops could not 
that still have a job is beyond me. I mean, I can't think of a better, a bigger dereliction of duty in the history of the world. But that's because they're, they're, uh, the policing for profit and the basis of policing for profit is asset torture. That's why they hide behind bushes and you know, love to pass out tickets for legal U-turns and all that kind of stuff. Because that brings in revenue. Stopping a shooting is not going to bring in revenue. It's dangerous. So that's, you know, that's why they don't do it. So and it's, it's, it needs to be completely revamped. And nobody's talking about it. I mean, people are criticizing those cops, but nobody's talking about what's at the basis of it. And that is that they certainly shouldn't have a right to be stealing your property, especially if you have nothing to do with it. But, you know, that, that's where we are now. And that uh, it's, it's it's part and parcel of what, what is this a horrible. I don't know how your justice system is up there. But I, I am terror. I tremble at the prospect. That's why I try to keep my nose clean. And, and when I'm saying stuff, because I know how many, Thought crimes are out there now. I tremble at the prospect of facing our justice system because I know how bad the juries are and how they'll convict anybody. They have no concept of reasonable doubt. Uh, and I know how the average uh, defendant uh, gets a public defender because they can't afford a real lawyer and they'll spend less than five minutes with them and they'll get you to plead. You know, they've got to plead guilty. I didn't do it. I don't care. I'm not representing. That's the system. And uh, so it, it's. But nobody, and that's that's the liberal in me. You know, that's when I started out. You know, as an ACLU card carrying member, of people, and now the ACLU doesn't—they literally don't care about civil liberties anymore. So it's uh, it's 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 just a mess here. I never run out of things to talk or write about, though. Uh, speaking of you know writing and and being uh, kicked off YouTube and so forth, in your uh, I protest uh, collection of essays. At on uh, Substack, you write about uh, fact checkers and shadow bans. What's happening with you uh, on Facebook and Twitter? Yeah, I mean that's that's the other thing is that um, if you don't know what shadow bans are, shadow bans are they don't like. I, and of course, people think you're a disinfoy. They think I worked with the CIA or something because how are you still? You know, I never get any warnings. Nothing. I've never gotten a warning. Never had a on Facebook or Twitter. And I've certainly been radical as good. I do say the same things there that I say here. But I started noticing, especially after COVID, because I, I was I was getting hundreds of reactions to my I was skeptical of the COVID narrative from the very beginning. Very few. I lost a lot of friends. <laughs> and eventually Facebook caught up to us. And they but instead of banning me, I just started noticing, hey, I'm, I'm getting hardly I'm getting almost no responses to my posts now. So what they do is they limit they don't let it get out to very many people. But you suddenly see you don't have it. And it's, uh, Twitter, it's the same thing. I never had as big an impact on Twitter because I didn't use it as much. But same kind of thing people tell me I don't see your tweet. So they don't see them. So you're basically, they'll let you post, but it's it's only going out to a handful of people. Even though I have Facebook, I have a maximum of 5,000 friends. Theoretically, I should have a huge response on it. But I, like I posted something uh now, the other day, I, I posted something the other day, and I did get a couple hundred responses. Sometimes it, it's true, but it's but most of the time it does. Like today, I posted something about the uh, the 69-year-old grandmother down here has breast cancer. It's a place as a prospect of months in prison. Insurrection is a horrible story. I think I had two reactions out of 5,000 friends. So that's what that is. The fact checkers, I just, the fact checkers used to on my COVID stuff, but I stopped pretty much writing my COVID because I was saying it. And plus I had lost so many friends about it. So I write about it on Substack. I don't want to do it or something. But um, they would just, you know, say this has been determined to be, and of course they're just, the fact checkers, we've been able to figure out who they are. They're typically college students who have famous parents or wealthy parents. And so they become, you know, Ridiculous. They're just regurgitating. They're basically Snopes. They're regurgitating establishment facts to counter because you're questioning something. So actually, that's not true. And uh, so that was the, the title of it was just, uh, you know, an attempt to say how I feel about it. I think this is that's why I gravitated to Substack and why I like Rockfin, because uh, I don't like censorship. And unfortunately, all the rest of the media, we thought maybe with the Elon Musk when he was making noise about that, that maybe Twitter is going to be free. But then I don't know if that was a whole, you know. Were you disappointed? Did he? Were you disappointed, uh, or do yeah. you, are you also suspicious of someone like an Elon Musk? Well, I, I was suspicious of him, but like I told people, oh, don't you? I, yeah, I know who. I know his past. I've seen pictures of you know his 
his wife and his mother and everything. I, and I, I understand from the world he's coming from, and I know he supposedly wants to put a chip in everybody. I've heard all that. I understand that. But he was saying, I, I support anybody. If Hillary Clinton was saying what he was saying, I would have said, she's right. Yeah, been sincere, and maybe he wasn't. But he was saying free speech is important. We need to have free speech here. we got to stop banning people. How, how do you not support that? So I said, yeah, odds are just like when Trump was running for president. Yeah, I, yeah he's, he's this is probably a joke. He's not going to do this, but he was saying stuff that I agree with. So of course I said, that's, that's great. So if somebody says that, yeah, I'm, I'm not naive. People accuse me of being naive. Yes, I understand that. And it'll probably turn out to, you know, be that they won't be sincere about it. But when Elon Musk was saying that, of course I supported him. I guess it, it ultimately I'm disappointed and disillusioned. That, and then he ended up, I guess, not getting it, but are backing out after they are, they froze him out. I don't, I don't really even understand exactly what happened, but, um, well, of course, what he, what he said, the important thing is what he was talking about. You have to agree with that. Free speech is important, but apparently uh, the rest of the people at Twitter don't agree with that. So what we thought, I thought we might have one social media platform that was uh, not censored, but apparently uh, they're all going back to business as usual. Well, it's not over yet. I still think maybe he has uh, a plan B in his hip pocket. We'll see. Don Jeffries is uh, with us. We'll uh, come back, continue to talk about uh, his uh, upcoming book, Hidden History 3. Again, donaldjeffries.substack.com, the website. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Donald Jeffries is with us, and uh, we're talking about his, uh, well, a lot of things, but um, uh, including his upcoming book, Hidden History 3. I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that, and I want to begin with, you call him the original conspiracy theorist. Uh, that was Senator Joe McCarthy, of course, who's been vilified uh, in the history books you know, because of the uh, the Red Scare and the the, the persecution of uh, Hollywood screenwriters and directors who um, had some maybe some tenuous link to the Communist Party. In other cases, they had a very firm link with the Communist Party. Uh, tell me a little bit about why you think Joe McCarthy got such a raw deal. Well, I just think from just what you said as well, and that, that's the general impression of him is that he he really. Uh, there was a, a witch hunt in the 50s, and people were unfairly maligned for their beliefs. But McCarthy wasn't really doing that. People talk about the uh, you know, Hollywood and everything, and that, that all happened under the House Un-American Activities Committee, which is you know, an Orwellian-sounding name, but it was in the House. McCarthy was in the Senate. He had nothing to do with that at all. And if people don't know the name of Owen J. Parnell, he was the head of that, of that committee. Nobody knows him. It's not, they don't say Parnellism. But uh, instead, they talk about McCarthy. McCarthy was going at strictly focusing on what he thought was a communist influence, Soviet influence in the government. And he really got into deep water when he started focusing on the army. Because, I mean, that's obviously goes to the heart of uh, what I think was a phony Cold War. And I think McCarthy was uh, revealing that. And if you go and look at what he, uh, yeah, he was dramatic and he was, he was naive. But he, uh, he, as I said, he was the first conspiracy theorist regarding Pearl Harbor. He was the first one to look into that and say, hey, you know, they, they had foreknowledge. He, and he knew sentences, I, crimes and cover-ups. And I, I think I very conclusively, based on the work of a lot of other people, like John Cohen, going back to infamy, that Roosevelt did have foreknowledge. It was, it was 
plan. They wanted to get us into the war and they were willing to sacrifice men to do it. And that's what happened. And McCarthy, unlike most of these other people too, had been a genuine war hero. They called him Pale Gunner Joe. He was a tail guy. He was in the fighting. You know, he was he was firing you know, from the from the, the tail of these planes. So uh, regardless of what you think about war, he, he was he was really there, much as JFK was. So I have more respect for people like that than the chicken hawks that, you know, like like FDR, for instance, who, who, who supported every war, but, you know, was never going to get near one, even if he hadn't had the physical problems again. But um, so McCarthy, I have lots of the t- uh, excerpts from the testimony when he, he was looking into uh, Montauk, which is he mentioned uh, he touched on, you know, he didn't say Area 51, but he was touching on that. And I talked about the July 1940. He was talking about July 1947 an awful lot. And uh, so I think there were intimations and other authors have thought, I don't go there because I can't prove it, but maybe he was already wondering about what was happening there. So he uh, he was doing some interesting work, I'll say, from that point. And then, of course, uh, anybody that dies as he did, you know, he, he went and he was 48 years old. Uh, he had uh, pro- complained of knee problems. He goes into Bethesda Naval Hospital of all places. And he dies two days later. Uh, we still don't know what he died from. No autopsy done, which is all too common in these cities. I profile a guy like that. We don't know. And I, I tried to, um, as I try to track down descendants of these people, and I just thought, you know, what do people in McCarthy's family think of it? And I knew he only had one daughter that he adopted as a baby right before he died, so he didn't even know. But I found out she died a couple of years ago, not that far from me, actually. If I had been quicker about it, maybe I could have talked to her, but she never discussed him her entire life. She refused to. His widow lived about 20 some years after that. Wouldn't talk about him. He had like eight siblings or something like that. They wouldn't talk about him. One of his siblings died very strangely, like a year after. He, so I, and I have all this in the book, but those are the kind of things that, that intrigue me. I also, I, I looked for like George McClellan from the civil war. I tried to look up his descendants as well. You just, you just can't find any. And I think that these people that become demonized, McClellan in his day, certainly John McCarthy, one of the most demonized people ever. Uh, I, I feel for those people because I think they're usually unfairly demonized. And in McCarthy's case, uh, he was he had the right kind of friends. You know, Joe, Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., you know, old Joe Kennedy was a good friend of his. And he was uh, they're trying to distance themselves now from it. But for a long time, it was recorded that Joe McCarthy was the godmother to Robert F. Kennedy. Sorry, Joe, you cut out there a little bit. Joe McCarthy was the was the God, God, godfather to Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, who was uh, Robert F. Kennedy's oldest child. Now, they, I think they claim now they try to claim he wasn't, but they claimed it for a long time. And he had dated a couple of the Kennedy sisters. Uh, they were friends, John F. Kennedy and uh, Bobby Kennedy as well. has got his start, you know, as you know, working for McCarthy's committee. And they they remained kind of loyal to him. They would never really bad mouth him. But McCarthy was friends with James Forrestal, too. Good friends. And we are uh, looking forward to the publication of his uh, next book, Hidden History 3. Uh, we were talking about Joe McCarthy dying at Bethesda Naval Hospital under uh, very mysterious circumstances, goes in for, a, you know, maybe knee surgery or something and dies two days later. That's also where James Forrestal died. Uh, Died, correct. Yes. T- tell us, right. uh, tell my listeners who James Forrestal was. Yeah, he was. Well, he was uh, Harry Truman's Secretary of Defense. He was the first Secretary of Defense up until that time. They called him Secretary of War. He was the first Secretary of Defense, the first modern Secretary of Defense. He supposedly jumped out of a window at the Naval Hospital. Uh, I, I don't think anybody that studied the case at all thinks he jumped out. McCarthy certainly didn't. McCarthy was good friends with him, and he actually wrote. He basically said they murdered him. It's interesting. And uh, so Bethesda has a little bit of a timeline there. You have Forrestal, who also is good friends with the Kennedy family, by the way, uh, who gets thrown out of a window, I think it's almost certain, and uh, good friends with McCarthy. And Forrestal is the one who I use that quote all the time. He told McCarthy at one point, you know, McCarthy, you know, you're on the right track. You know, if there wasn't this huge conspiracy, once in a while they'd make a mistake in our favor. I use that line all the time. This is not, you know, if, if this was all random and happenstance, then some good people would emerge at sometimes uh, justice would prevail sometimes, but it's always people just expect it. They expect the, you know, the injustice to win and, and, and evil to win. And that shouldn't happen naturally if it's all random. And uh, that's what Forrestal thought. And McCarthy certainly thought it. And so Forrestal dies at Bethesda. 
McCarthy dies at Bethesda and imports JFK, uh, has the autopsy, uh, the autopsy to end all autopsies at Bethesda. And so they have, they have quite a track record there, but uh, I think these things are connected. That's, that's, I think that's what makes it uh, hard for like the JFK research community, whatever, to, to, to handle me. Because I draw these kinds of connections. I think history is a timeline, and I think there, there are these interesting connections everywhere. And so I think that uh, in, in, in Crimes and Cover-Ups, I, I'm not left or right, as you know. In, in that book, I, I was defended Joseph McCarthy, but I also defended the Rosenbergs. I think that they, they're not going to find anybody else that, that, that does that balancing act. But again, I think that it was a, they were both victims of what I think was a phony Cold War. But McCarthy is... Uh, I don't know about restoring his reputation, but and I know I'll probably catch a lot of flack for it, but uh, it is what it is. And I think he, uh, I think he's gotten a, a bad rap. And uh, I think people agree once they uh, read the new material I have on in the book. Why was James Forrestal taken out? Do you suppose? Well, you know, a lot of people, of course, who were pretty, Forrestal was very uh, upset with the way Israel was created. He was the first critic of Israel. And I think he recognized a lot of people did at the time, a surprising number of people. And I, again, I talked about this in Crimes and Cover-Ups. I don't really go and free, but there was a lot of uh, people were a lot of upset because, you know, they, they basically created Israel out of, of other people's land. And they just installed them in the middle of all these kind of warring ethnic people. And they didn't expect something bad to happen. I mean, it was, just, it was, it wasn't thought out well at all. And uh, Forrestal, didn't like it at all. And I think, I don't know if that's the reason he was killed. There are other, you know, supposedly, you know, he, of course he was friends with Joe McCarthy. That could have been a reason in itself. Uh, and again, the Kennedys were already enemies of the deep state. He was friends with Joe. They hated the old man. So it, it could be just something as simple as that, but however you look at it, I mean, I don't, I can't figure out sometimes why, I mean, look like what happened to Ivana Trump, you know, last week. I think somebody took her out. I mean, she's, you know, she's found, she was a healthy 73-year-old. She's found dead at the bottom of the stairs, and she's got a massive trauma to her midsection, but nowhere else. I mean, she was deep with the baseball. But, I mean, I, why would they do that to her? I don't know. So, but, I, but I found enough of these unnatural deaths to know that a lot of times they may not pick the most logical suspect, but the carrying cards are always there. You know, the tendency, you know, somebody wasn't suicidal and falls out of a window or is put out of a window or in case of McCarthy, somebody goes into the hospital with a knee problem and dies two days later and they don't do an autopsy. I mean, that should have been the first thing they'd done. I mean, this is the most controversial figure in America. Of course, you're going to order an autopsy. Instead, his enemies like Jack Anderson and, and Drew Pearson, oh, he was a drunk, he was an alcoholic. Obviously, he died in it. Okay, that satisfies the court historians, but some of us want more evidence than that. Edward R. Murrow kind of made a career out of going after McCarthy, didn't he? Yeah, sure. And when you have it, so you, it culminates in that movie, it was a good night and whatever the one with George Cloney. Um, that's, that's what I call Mick history. And that's what they settle on. And I, I talk a lot, I talk a little bit about that in the book. And I talk a lot about Joseph Welch, you know, the secretary of the army who said, have you no decency, sir? At long last, have you no decency? And that, that's the, when you, when they talk about McCarthy, they'll play that sound bite. And it's like, mic drop. Oh, but I, I go into the history behind it and what a phony Welch was and how when the cameras were off, he, you know, he started laughing and saying, hey, did that go well and everything? And I talk about it in the book. I mean, he, he was, he had already worked out some kind of a deal or tried to work out a deal with McCarthy. He was no uh, ideologue that was outraged by this. You know, his hands weren't clean, but this is the way the court historians try to uh, portray these things. And I, they always do it dishonestly. I, and I think McCarthy was a naive but well-meaning guy, and I think they killed him. You, you spend a lot of time, you know, obviously writing about the past and, and uncovering a lot of this corruption and deception and evil. Have any, has anything really changed? I mean, we tend to think now, oh, you know, we're like, we're, we're, we're approaching some kind of um, pivotal moment, you know, uh, mm -hmm. like it's never been worse. Is that are we being cynical or are we just now hyper attuned to corruption and evil? I mean, are things worse than they were before? In other words, well, I think they are worse than they were before, but I think they're they are the way they are 
because of these things that happened in the past. And that's why I talk about the past is prologue. And the things we see today, transgender story hour and uh, the crushing of civil liberties, all this stuff, it all has its, that's why I try to show where these things started. So you know, when you see, for instance, when we had the Guantanamo Bay or uh, Gitmo, the, uh, you know, the light bulbs being stuck up the butt to the prisoners there and those awful pictures and all that stuff, the torch that went on there. You go back to uh, the Mexican-American War, if you don't want to go back to the scorched earth policy and the uh, total war of the Lincoln, and you see the kinds of things that were tolerated then, the rapes and the thefts, the abuse of people, and it goes right through to the Philippines and and, I, and crimes and cover-ups, I talked about all the atrocities that happened by the Allies in World War II, all the rapes. They raped, they raped some, well, they raped a bunch of German women. They raped so many Japanese women, they had to open a brothel for them on Japan, try to cater to them. And these are our boys. So, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, that makes me unpatriotic, uh, so be it. But I, that doesn't mean I think the other guys were necessarily good. But the point is, I don't think we were. I mean, we did a lot of bad things. And so that's what I always try to point out, that we, it's uh, American exceptionalism is wrong-headed because other than, I think we did create an exceptional system, the founders did, but unfortunately, we've, we don't follow it. The people in power don't, they swear to uphold the Constitution, but most of them hate the Constitution, don't believe in it. So uh, it's, it's, it's a joke. I mean, it's, that's why it's hilarious to listen to them talk about the, uh, upholding the constitution by holding these Soviet style hearings in Washington that wandered into the Capitol and pictures. I mean, it's just, so on that respect, I think it is worse than ever because we're at the point now, especially if they, you know, can succeed. Well, they are, and they're going to succeed in, in putting some of these, probably almost all of them in prison for who knows how long, but they have uh, basically uh, criminalized this. And you know, that shatters, you know, we have an, a lawful right to assemble. And you're not going to see that side. They're going to be scared to assemble in the future because they don't want the same thing happen to them. These people have been kept in prison for over a year. They've been denied all due process. They, some of them can't even afford attorneys. And Donald Trump is out collecting $200 million and he's not, he's not offering them any money. They're there because of him. He should be financing them. So it's, uh, it's a mess. But yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm not looking at it through rose-colored glasses, but Compared to where we are now, obviously, I think it was a lot better, but that's because it was a gradual decline. And these, but it, every time, you know, they, when they, when you lied about something like McCarthy or certainly the JFK assassination, it's like a, um, it's like a graph where you see a steady line down each time that happened and the people didn't demand the truth and they settled for the lies. And then all these lies begat other lies. So at this point, I have I've quite a job to do trying to expose. Uh, I can't keep up with them because there's so many of them. And I, I invariably miss stuff. And, but it's, uh, it's, that's why I said at this point, anybody, I don't discount anything at this point, any, any kind of theory, because um, we know we're being lied to. And so I, I don't know that necessarily uh, some theories or aliens among us or whatever are more likely than that. But I, but I do know that we're, we're being lied to all the time. So it's reasonable to speculate. People are going to try to find truth somewhere. We look forward to your upcoming book, Donald. Thank you as always. Oh, thank you, Richard. Donald Jeffries. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.